All right, we are going to get rolling this morning. Jesus' last bit of teaching, the last chunk of teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. Go in your Bibles or the Bibles around the room, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. This is Jesus' conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's not our conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount as a church. We have been, we're going to continue to live this well beyond this week, to continue to come to Jesus' words and, and, and ask him to shape us and to form us and to instruct us. But next week will be a bit special in the sense that we are going to gather as a church, not around a preached text, but we're going to gather around a, the as the church next week during both gatherings around the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. And we are going to dialogue a bit and share a bit as a church family, for those of you who are willing, just where the Sermon on the Mount has been landing for you. How Jesus has been instructing you, forming you, messing with you, challenging you, not leaving you where you were, but taking you to where he is. So be thinking as you anticipate coming into our gatherings next weekend, What has Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount been doing to you? What has it been doing in you? We'll dialogue together. We'll have an opportunity to just share and to hear from one another, a bit in the spirit of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, where the Apostle Paul uh, urges the church, if anybody has a lesson or a hymn or a song or a word for the church, to bring that to the gathered people of God for the sake of building one another up. So that's our hope, that we'll be built up as we tell stories of what Jesus is doing in our lives through the Sermon on the Mount next week. Be thinking about it. Come prepared uh, with just something to say as we express gratitude to him and gratitude to one another for the work he's doing in our lives. All right, with that being said, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24. I actually need to go there myself, 24 through 29. Jesus says, everyone who then hears, so he's carrying on from something that he's already said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, does them too, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. It did not collapse because, why? Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell, it collapsed. And great was the fall of it. This is God's word. Father, would you speak to your people through your word, through your servant this morning? Would you help us to hear your word with faith and to do your word with faith, to live it out. Please, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you, has anybody in here heard of the Milk Crate Challenge? Have you guys heard of the Milk Crate Challenge? Handful of you? It's a, it's a, it's a disaster. So it's a bit of a social media craze, kind of like the Ice Bucket Challenge a few years ago. And it's drawing huge crowds and it's producing some really big injuries. Uh, people are getting like, Shoulder injuries, head injuries, all like it's 
it's brutal. I'm going to show you some pictures here in just a moment to illustrate. But what happens is you stack one milk crate on each end, and then two, then three, then four, then five, then six. Then in the very center, there's a tower of seven milk crates. None of them are secured to the ground. All of them are balanced and fixed on each other. And the goal is to walk up the pyramid and down the pyramid without crashing the pyramid. But what we're finding is that people are crashing the pyramid. So we're going to watch, we're going to see some of these photos in just a moment. And there's, there's a bit of entertainment value, but there's also warning in all of this. And you'll see how it connects in just a moment. Roll the first one. This is the result of what this milk crate challenge produces right here. It's gnarly. Go to the second one. This lady, man, she is airborne. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The third one here has actually three, and it's my favorite. Let's start on the right. Go to the third one, and then let's start on the one on the right. Okay. So this guy on the right, if you look really closely, he is concerned about his, fa- his, his uh, safety because he is wearing a mask. <laughs> but he is not all that concerned about his safety because he's doing the milk crate challenge. Now, the guy in the middle, that is an impressive handstand with only one sandal. And the guy on the left is the highest of them all, if you look carefully at what's in the background. (laughs) There's so much going on in these. They're funny, but they, they do produce a bit of a, a warning, right? Let's, let's be warned. Uh, here's a definition of foolishness on the screen, actually. People leave the stability of the ground for the instability of a milk crate pyramid and the approval of their peers. That's what this is about. It's also about a pile of cash because the crowd will throw in some money and then they, if they can do it, they win some cash. So it's entertaining to peers, but in most cases, it's disastrous to the person who's actually doing it. This is a, a pretty compelling illustration, I think, for how many of us, how we shape our lives, how we live our lives. We're aware of the solid ground all around us, what it's about, but instead we try to build our lives on things that are unstable on an unstable footing. So question, when it comes to what you're building, the various aspects of your life that will together produce the whole of your life, when you are, uh, when you're giving yourself to these various things, when you're building these aspects of your life on, do your feet go all the way to the ground? Do your feet go all the way to the ground? Your feet go all the way into the rock. There's no shortage of pressing demands today for what we must believe according to culture in order to be free. Go ahead and change that slide, Sean. There's no, uh, no shortage of, what, uh, of demands that culture is sending our way around what it means to be free, what it means to be happy, what it means to be successful, what it means to have identity and to feel right with who we are, or even to be loving. Society has all kinds of notions today about what it means to be loving. A rule of marketing is that less is more. 
So for example, if, if, if you are trying to sell me t-shirts, it would be better for you to give me three options than give, as a consumer than to give me 10 options. Because if you give me three options, I can make a choice readily. If you give me 10 options, I, like, I freeze between option nine, two, and five. Let's not play choose your adventure with all of life's options and freeze when it comes to what we're building our lives on. So we have an opportunity this morning to go to our maker, to hear from him how life works, and then to choose to follow him and to follow his voice and his ways rather than the voice of the crowds and the ways of the crowds. So this morning we're going to be looking specifically at hearing and doing Jesus' words. My first point, hearing with faith leads to doing by faith. As we hear Jesus, we take him at his word, hearing him, seeing him for who he is, hearing by faith, or with faith rather, leads to doing by faith. This is the, the wise life. Hearing what God calls us to, taking that with faith, believing him, and then moving out into obedience by the same faith, trusting him. Jesus says, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them. So there's obedience like embedded in his conclusion to this sermon here. He's aiming also at obedience. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain falls, the floods came, the winds blow, they beat on that house, but the house stands. It does not fall. Because, why? It had been founded on the rock. But everyone who then hears these words, so both parties are hearing, hears these words of mine and does not do them, is like a foolish person who built their house on the sand. The rains come, the floods come, the winds beat on the house, and great was the fall of it. Why? Because it had not been founded on the rock. Jesus, all that he is, the man who is God, who's come to live among us, the God in the flesh, Jesus, all he is, and also all the, the way that he has lived and the way that he has taught us to live. His, so him and his teaching, not divorced from the concerns of our everyday life. He is not divorced from the concerns of our everyday life. When we encounter the real Jesus in the Gospels, he is not a Buddha who is asking us to deny all of our cravings and attachments. He's not also, he's not either a lawgiver who's just giving us the stiff fist of rebuke, telling us to get our act together and to perform our way to him. That is impossible. That is anti-gospel. We cannot earn our way into God's favor, period. He's also not indifferent. He's not aloof to the things that we love, to the people that we love, and the things that the choices that we make. He's not aloof to any of it. He's the God who is there. He's the God who is here. He's the God who is present with his people. And so what he does in the Sermon on the Mount is he speaks to a number of our major concerns. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's been, he's been moving through this swath, this sea of human emotion and dysfunction and, and the choices before us, pointing out our anger, and how in the bud, in the seed, that anger will actually lead to us killing people. How lust and sexual sin in the seed, in the bud, will move itself out and destroy a host of human relationships. 
He's teaching us continually about what it means to be dependent on God rather than on self, to forsake self, but rather to, by faith, cling to Him. He's focusing on our attitudes toward other people. He's focusing on how we use our resources, our money, our possessions. He's focusing on the strength for sure of our marriages, which leave a family legacy, our integrity, what we do in the dark our legacies, our prayer lives. He's focusing on all of this in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to remember something, that his primary audience in the Sermon on the Mount is not the crowds. His primary audience in the Sermon on the Mount are the disciples. Matthew chapter 5, they have gathered around his feet. And then from there, the crowds come in and they begin to press their ear on the door to hear his teaching. The crowds are actually a secondary audience. They're an audience for sure, but they are a secondary audience audience. The disciples have left everything that they had to follow Jesus. They've already begun to take some steps of faith to be with him. Nonetheless, no matter who the audience is, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching about what it means to live as citizens under the king, who he is, in the kingdom. So the Sermon on the Mount is, in many ways, teaching us how the kingdom works, what the kingdom feels like. In the previous passages even, just immediately before Matthew chapter 7, this rock and sand parable that he's just given us, he's given us a series, he's given a series of warnings to his disciples too. He said, enter by the narrow gate, stay on the narrow path. We learned that he is the gate, he is the path, that, that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. He continues with the metaphors. Everybody is like a tree. Some people bear fruit for the kingdom. Some people pose and bear a kind of fruit. It looks fruity, but it is fruity. It's diseased. And then we come into this. I didn't mean to be funny there. Sorry. Just that's how apparently I'm funny. It sneaks up on everybody. Jesus now uses the parable of the rock and the sand. Hardship, here's something we need to know. Hardship will come without discrimination for the person in your seat. It will come for you. Hardship will come for you. You're young. You haven't experienced much of it. It will come for you. What we build our lives on determines whether the house, the life, the legacy stands or falls. So, question Do your feet go all the way to the ground? Do your feet go all the way to the ground? All the way into the rock? Uh, Hearing or doing? Yes. Hearing by faith and then doing by faith. This is the wise life. So, you guys, as we relocate our trust away from self and, uh, and, and, and created things, so we don't only trust in ourselves, we also trust in created things to justify us, to give us a measure of satisfaction, to produce that, uh, to fill that void of longing within us. As we relocate our trust away from those things or away from ourself and to the real Jesus, fruitfulness will come. It may come slow. It may come at the pace of a thousand-year-old oak feels achingly slow. It's like the, the, the measure of our sanctification is like in a year, click. 
next year? Click. It does come. Endurance does come. Perseverance does come. In the midst of incredible difficulty, houses and lives built upon the rock of Jesus Christ will continue to stand and give glory to God. That is his promise to us. That is what is observably true over the course of church history, seeing saints martyred for their faith, seeing saints pass on the teaching or just unnamed, but generation after generation after generation of people believe in the real Jesus because of their witness, because of their faithful discipling in the home, because of their faithful discipling in the margins, in the neighborhood, in the workplace. And so over time, as endurance comes, as perseverance comes, we, the people of God, can say, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. He's overriding our will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every single one of us in this room, I would, I would, uh, I think with 100% accuracy, I could say, struggles in various ways to believe Jesus to take him at his word. Every single one of us. Like the father with an ill child in Mark chapter 9. Like he brings his child to Jesus to be healed. If you've been around the church or read the gospels many times, the story will stick out to you. And Jesus says, are you willing? And he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's us. That's the people who Jesus is called by name. We're disciples. We're following him. But it's still us. You've heard me say this before. I think it is very accurate for my own life. There are vast, there are still vast unevangelized territories in my own heart. There are places within my own heart, my own life that, I have, that have not been turned over to the lordship of Jesus. Like I'm still the captain of some of those areas. The reason that I know that is because past performance is the greatest indicator of future performance. And if I look back on the last 10 years of my life today, I recognize there were things that I did not know and things that I had not turned over and things that I could not even see at that time that he has been working with me on over the course of this last decade. And therefore, because past performance is a good indicator of future performance, it's probably true that there are still areas that need to be unearthed in my life, and I won't be able to see him until I'm 53. And I think that's probably true for us, all of us. There are places where the gospel, the good news of Jesus, hasn't yet done all of the work that it will do to us. And so this is not a place of like fear and trepidation and we shrink back, but actually like, Lord, you're not done with me. You're continuing to work with me, to work on me, to work in me, to work through me. And so as a church family, we do not move beyond the good news of Jesus. Why? Because the good news of Jesus is never finished with us. He is never finished with us. Now, for clarity's sake, the gospel, like, what is this good news that comes home to me initially and draws me into the family of God, but continues to come home to me on a regular basis and move me on in the family of God? Timothy Keller says that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A to Z of Christianity, which means the gospel isn't just the way into the kingdom, but it's actually the way on in the kingdom too. What is this gospel? God is the perfect creator, created us to image him 
to live in perfect unity before him, to live in perfect unity with one another. We are his created and loved creatures and on the third page of our Bibles turned away from him. And we turned away from him in rebellion and yet we're still created in the image of God but marred. Something needs to be corrected, set right, renewed, rebuilt. And while rebels deserve death, while that's what all of us who have turned away from the living God and turned toward lesser things to worship, while we deserve death and while we deserve justice, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the God who is one, are merciful to us. And therefore, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, added humanity to his divinity. He took on flesh. He came and he lived among us for 30-something years. He lived among us, suffered with us, taught us and lived as the perfect man, perfectly fulfilling the law of God. Where Adam, our first parent, failed in the garden by choosing his own will, my will be done, Jesus, the second Adam, passed the test in the garden by saying, not my will be done, but your will be done. This God, this Jesus, went to the cross because we hated his righteousness. And if it wasn't them, it would be us. We condemned him to death. And yet because God is just, he accepted the death of Jesus as a substitute for the death that every one of us deserve. And then on the third day, after being buried for three, Jesus, by the Spirit of God, was raised to life, never to die again, promising to us that whoever places our faith, our trust, our dependence on him and on his work, will have peace with God and that marred image of the creator will begin to be renewed day by day until the day we see him face to face. And on the day that we see him face to face is not the final day. It's like the first day in so many ways. Eternal life with God in his presence. So when we have knowledge of these objective historical facts. That's a part of our faith. To, to recognize what the gospel is. That God has become man, dwelt among us, calling us to redemption, has been crucified to cover our sins and raised as proof that we are going to be the justified. We are the justified people of God. When we see these objective historical facts, that's part of our faith. There's something else that's required too. It's called assent. Assent is recognizing these facts and saying that we believe them, agreeing with them. So, for instance, I could look at this stool and I could say it's got four legs. It looks sturdy, solid. That is knowing the facts. Assenting to the facts would be to say before you, I believe that that stool can hold me. But there's something still lacking. What is it? It's this. This is that final piece of our faith. When we rest the full weight of our trust on the promise that that will hold me. That is faith. When we know the facts, 
We believe the facts and then we move into resting the full weight of our dependence on them. You could say it like uh, knowledge is knowing the facts of the gospel. Assent is agreeing with the message there. Yeah, I believe that. But trust is trusting the promise that it'll hold you up. And so that faith is justifying faith, meaning the first time we believe it, we're justified and drawn into the family of God. We, be, we just became a Christian. We just became a follower of Jesus. We are now child of God, not child of wrath. But as we continue to practice knowing how the gospel comes home to the various aspects of our lives, we continue to practice believing the message of that good news, and we continue to rest the full weight of our dependence on that good news when we think the money's going to run out or the person's going to run out or the thing is going to run out. That faith aimed at the gospel is a sanctifying faith. It's an ongoing faith. It's a purifying faith. So in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus is outlining for us what it looks like to live as... Feel free to take a screenshot of that with your phone too if there's a lot on the screen there. Um, Jesus is outlining for us in the Sermon on the Mount what it looks like to live as citizens in his kingdom. He's not telling us in the Sermon on the Mount what we must do to be saved. When we read the Sermon on the Mount... He's not giving us a list of to-dos that we have to perform in order to be accepted into God's presence. We've tried to make that very, 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 very clear. What the Sermon on the Mount is actually describing is the flavor, the way of life for God's kingdom people. It's In some ways, it's a bit like a job description. You're not applying for the job. You already got the job. You already got the sonship. Now it's a job description saying, go and do Go and live in this way. Lean in this way in obedience. The biblically wise life is the life that knows Jesus, believes Jesus, and depends on Jesus. And so Jesus says, if anyone does these words. That's evidence. As we're leaning into doing the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, to living them out, to employing them, that's some evidence that our faith is alive. It's not all the evidence that there is, but it's some evidence. So many of us struggle to know, is my faith really alive? The brother of Jesus, James, in James 1, 21 through 25, he says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. There's some more shorthand for gospel there, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres or does, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, this person will be blessed in his doing. He or she will experience the keeping power of Christ as we lean into obedience. There's a very direct relationship between our faith and our way of life. And we do need a firm foundation built on rock. Why? Because life is full of difficulty. Our lives are full of difficulty. Go ahead and throw that slide up on the screen. 
Matthew Bruner, he's a commentator that we, uh, that we have been leaning on and that we have been uh, quoting from at length. He says, Matthew's Jesus, so the Jesus um, that Matthew portrays in his gospel, Matthew almost always describes Jesus, or almost always rather describes the Christian life in terms of survival rather than sensation. What Matthew is getting at is that the Christian life is hard and disciples in many cases are just clinging, just hanging on through the storms of life. Notice in Jesus' parable of the storms in Matthew chapter 7, the rain comes, the floods come, the winds come. The same storm hits both people, the ones who both hear, but only one does and one doesn't do, but the same storm hits both. The difference between life built on the rock of Jesus versus the life built on the sand of anything other than Jesus is not protection from trouble, it's actually protection in trouble. That's the difference. The house stands because the foundation stands. It's not whether or not storms are going to come. They are going to come. It's whether or not you're going to hold up in the storms of life. Do your feet go all the way to the ground? Notice how the storm comes too. It comes in the rain. Like the, it's so all-encompassing here. The rain pounding from the top, right? The floods sweeping us from the bottom and the winds hitting and pounding us from all sides. Sometimes that's what it feels like in the midst of our suffering. Jesus is asking his hearers to dig into the rock and to set the foundation there. Do your feet go all the way to the ground and to the rock? Now, Jesus' use of the word rock here is specific and intentional and really pretty interesting. And I think that Matthew has used, we know that like Matthew is not some backwoods writer who has just kind of put together an ancient document that is doing a so-so job at telling the life of Jesus from his perspective. This is a literary masterpiece, especially to the Eastern mind and the one who is kind of steeped in Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament history. What Matthew is also doing here is he's, he's I think, using, uh, he's, he's noticing Jesus' use of the word rock alongside Peter's confession and Peter's name that Jesus would give him just a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 16. So the word that Jesus is using for rock is Petra. The word that Jesus gives to Peter is Petros. It's a play on words. Peter is the rock, and the rock is the rock, okay? Jesus is also using something called the definite article here, which means that he's saying the rock. Put your foundation into the rock. He's not saying a rock or some rock. He's saying the rock. It's very specific here. So I'll tie it together here in just a moment. Listen to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. When Jesus came, so this is the same gospel of Matthew. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? The son of man was his favorite title for himself in Matthew's gospel. And they said, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Still others, you're Jeremiah or you're one of the prophets. And Jesus says, but okay, guys, like who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, Simon Petra, Simon Rock answered, you're the Messiah, 
You're the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven revealed, my father in heaven opened your eyes to see this truth. And I also say that you are Petros and on this Petra, I will build my church. And the forces of Hades or hell or darkness will not overcome it. Some people in church tradition say, well, they, they differ on like what this all means. What is the rock that the church is built on? Is it built on Peter? Catholics would hold that the, the church is built on Peter himself as the chief apostle. Other people would say, no, it's built on the confession that Jesus is Lord that Peter would make. I think it's actually this. It's the same confession that Peter had here is the same confession that all of the apostles had. The church continues being built on the confession of Peter and the apostles, that Jesus Christ is Lord. The church is built on the rock. When we build our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the rain, the floods, the winds come, but we will stand because Jesus will hold us up. The question isn't what, uh, the, the question isn't will we build our lives on something, or will we build our lives on someone? The question is, what will it be? Everybody in the room, everybody in the community, everybody, everybody is building their life on something. Some version of what is true and beautiful and sturdy and valuable to them. So people in our culture are building identity and building value, building their lives on their notions of what Gender and sexuality promise them as true. They step into the real them. They step into loving relationships as they define them. And they lean the whole weight of who they are and their identity into being built on this rock for them. There are a lot of religious folks who do the exact same thing, but they do it with a particular theological tribe. And so doctrinal precision will be the rock that they will build their lives upon. So if we just stick with our denomination or our subgroup or our network, we will be right. And if we're right, everybody will know that we'll be justified by how biblical we are, right? The whole world will know you're my disciples by the doctrine that you fight over. No, that's not what Jesus said. The whole world will know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Every sane person builds their life on what they see as firm and stable and able to hold them up or give them meaning in the storms of life. Now, whether it's uh, engendered people celebrating the way that God has made us in his image and not trying to change and shift that, that can be wonderful. Doctrinal precision can be wonderful. Very, very, very good. But when it is an ultimate thing, it is an idolatrous thing, and therefore it is a bad thing. They matter, but they're not designed to give us the stability that we need in the very destructive and powerful storms of life. If these things are the foundation, even if they're good, they're sandy foundations, and there will be ruin because there is not actual rock underfoot. 
But take heart, we've got the words of Jesus teaching us to build our lives on the rock. This is one of the reasons that we're just giving ourselves over the next little while to reading the New Testament together, to just leaning in, to listening to the New Testament together, to reading the New Testament together. We want to soak in Jesus' words, the the whole um, scope and testimony of his life and teaching. We want to lean in. We want to know what who he is. We want to, in some ways, like kick our imaginations up so that we can see the dirt come up off of his feet and our imaginations come alive at the person and work of the historical the real Jesus of Nazareth. He really, this is my last point, loves you and I. (laughs) He loves the person in your seat. Funk and all, stank and all, he loves you. The fact that you're even here and listening this morning is evidence of that. That you are coming face to face, ear to ear with what is true, with who is true. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. doesn't tell us they believed. Tell us they said he was a really good teacher. They're astonished. Can you believe this guy? Man, he killed it. But that doesn't actually say that they believed. But they did recognize that he had authority, not as their scribes did. The scribes would appeal to authority above them, the Sanhedrin. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, Jesus wasn't appealing to any of that. He was appealing to his own authority. You've heard it said, but I say to you. They were, they were amazed and astonished at his teachings. The crowds heard the real Jesus, but the question is, would they go beyond simply saying that Jesus has authority to believing and resting their lives on the fact that he did have authority? When you, Whitney said this last week as she was hosting, that was wonderful, so like descriptive, When you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, it restructures your whole life. It messes with you. Jesus does not leave you where he found you, and he will not leave you where you are today. He is going to continue to work with you. I want to end with a quote by a guy named Dale Bruner. He's a commentator we use. I read him earlier. Um, he's, he says this. It's, I think it's, it's helpful as we kind of close out the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Of main importance is not the content of the sermon, but the one who said it. So think about it. The, the main importance here is not the content. It's not the information. The main importance is the one who it is coming through. He is the one who makes it true. In Matthew 5 through 7, the only one character opens his mouth. It's the guy who says, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? But on the whole, there is no dialogue, no questions, no vocal response. Jesus' words are ringing with silence. This focuses all the attention on him while it also implicitly impresses upon us his great authority. So when he speaks, he's alone and by himself. Jesus talks as if he already, quote, has all authority in heaven and on earth, which he will say in Matthew chapter 28. Who but God should talk like this? Who is this man? He is the only one worthy of building your life upon. So for those who are followers of Jesus, resolve that you will still be standing when the storm is over. Just take a moment. Can you resolve that you will still be standing when the storm is over? There's one of two ways that you're going to do that. 
You're either going to resolve that you are going to do it by your strength and your power, or you're going to resolve that you are going to do that by keeping your eyes on the one who is the rock. Will you put your trust in the one with all authority who cannot be shaken? Do your feet go all the way into the rock? The psalmist in Psalm 62 writes, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. My hope is from him. My hope is from God. He's only my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation. Who does my salvation rest on? It rests on God. And my glory, too. My well-being. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah which means pause and reflect. Is he your refuge? Is he your rock? Now, as you answer that question, like, ask. I'm not going to give you points of application. I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit. Just a moment of silence for application here. Show him. Ask him to show you your next step. Jesus, in the circumstances of my life, where I find myself right now, the resources that I have, the knowledge I have, what is my next step? To anchor my feet in something that cannot be taken out by rain, wind, or flood. What is it? Holy Spirit, would you speak to your people? Help us not escape this moment, but to identify What is my next step in setting my feet into the rock? You're good. You love us. You come to us. You teach us. You give us the ability to hear you by faith. Father, you open up our hearts to see you, to see your son, to love him. You give us the spirit of God who moves us further along in our faith, further along to people who don't yet know you. You do so much. You provide You love, you give, it's continuous. And even when life stinks all the way to the bottom, you are our refuge. So for my brothers and sisters in the room who are struggling right now and they find that they resonate more with that than a place of comfort or satisfaction with where they are in life, would you help, please? Minister to your people, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.